Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we are going to be visiting Gemini, the twins of the night sky. Gemini, which is just Latin for twins, is a zodiac constellation that is recognized among the 88 IAU constellations, as well as being one of Ptolemy's great, 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 48 constellations that are identified in Ptolemy's Almagest. For more on Ptolemy and the Almagest, be sure to check out episode 2 on Aquarius, the water bearer. Gemini ranks 30th in overall size among the IAU constellations, and for northern sky observers, it's a very bright, distinct, and recognizable constellation. Both ancient Greek and ancient Babylonian astronomy identify this constellation as twins, but who the twins are differs across the two mythologies, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. Definitely lots of twins in mythology, but before we do that, let's talk first impressions and then discuss some of the astronomy of this constellation. Absolutely. So what did you see when you looked at this constellation? Well, this was a great one. My first impression is that it looks like two stick figures holding hands. Mm -hmm. It's like the most accurate depiction we've seen yet. There's like recognizable head and legs and arms. I was like, all right, this is a constellation. It's even more recognizable than the Taurus horns. Like out of the six we've done so far, this is the first one where I was like, okay, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. It's convincingly two stick figures holding hands. So, yeah, twins make sense. It's 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 wild, kind of. It's discernibly human figures. <laughs> they yeah. finally nailed it. Yeah, we're on a good run so far, but, you know, spoilers. Uh, next month, we are back to amorphous polygons and letters. Oh, can't wait. So even though this constellation is more visible to northern observers, it's visible between the latitudes of 90 degrees and negative 60 degrees. And like all the zodiac constellations, it's located on the ecliptic. I know we mentioned the celestial ecliptic earlier during the Aries episode, but could we get like a quick refresher on what that means? So we orbit the sun at a distance of 1 AU or 150 million kilometers. This, of course, is more of an average since there's times when we're closer and further from the sun in our orbit. And that's because our orbit itself isn't perfectly circular. Of course not. It's more of an oval shape. Yeah, it's uh, an elliptical orbit, which was first described by Johannes Kepler. My personal favorite Johann. <laughs> Definitely in the Johann family of names. Kepler lived around the same time as Bayer, but instead of creating a star catalog, Kepler's major work was on planetary motion, and his first work was actually defending the Copernican system of the solar system. His work was definitely in that arc of everyone ignored him, told him he was wrong, but then it turned out he was right, and you know I love that. I love that entire narrative. It's a great narrative arc. So, okay, we figured out that we orbit the sun in an elliptical pattern. Right, but the sun appears to move through our sky since we're observing from Earth. I've seen the sun move through our <laughs> sky many walks. I go to the beach, I marvel, I see it rise, I see it set, yes. Right, so the apparent path that the sun takes in the sky throughout the year is called the ecliptic, and it was named this by early astronomers who thought that the sun was orbiting Earth. Technically, 13 constellations lay along this same path. 12 of them are identified as the zodiac constellation, and the last one, which didn't make the cut in the zodiac, is known as Ophiuchus. 
And it is a snake. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And the Zodiac constellations were basically just special because they were on this ecliptic path. So these constellations that seemed to align with the yearly motion of the sun, they wound up getting special treatment. Well, everyone except for the snake. Well, except for the snake. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say you do want to find Gemini. It has a right extension of seven hours and a declination of 20 degrees. And it's actually best seen in February nights. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of memories of winter walks, hanging out with the twins. Uh, but if that description isn't helpful, you can also find this between Taurus and Cancer. And it's actually located near Orion as well. Perfect, Kit. Now we know where to find it, what it looks like, mm -hmm. which is actually what it actually is supposed to look like for once. Mm -hmm. So let's get into the brightest stars. There are two very bright stars in Gemini, so I think we should focus just on them, even though there are 17 main stars, and four of them are particularly bright. But I think we should just focus on those two. It makes sense. After all, this constellation is called Gemini, and these two stars carry the name of the twins. I'll start us off with the brightest star in the constellation, which is Beta Geminorum, a.k.a. another F for Bayer. It's also known as Pollux, which is the name of one of the Greek characters. It's the head of one of the twins, and it's an orange giant star that is 34 light years from the sun, making it one of the closest giant stars to Earth. The star has a visible magnitude of 1.14. It's about twice the mass of the sun, but nine times its radius. Mm -hmm. The star was once an A-type main-sequence star, but has since evolved. It isn't likely to supernova, like the star in Messier 1 or the Crab Nebula. Most likely, it's just going to chill out at this large radius, low mass, high brightness point until the gas starts to pull away from the core of the star. Yep, exactly. The second brightest star is Alpha Geminorum. Bear! I read that this is something that he got wrong, not due to his lack of telescope skills, but because he was just really sloppy with his observations. <laughs> Classic bear. Well, he was just another white guy in the 17th century. Didn't think anyone was going to come along and fact check him with his with his observations. Uh, indeed. So Alpha Geminorum is about 18 light years from Pollux and is the other head of the twin. So unsurprisingly, if you're familiar with the myth, this star's name is Castor. But this is misleading because this system actually includes six stars. It's composed of three binary pairs of stars, which are creatively named Castor A, Castor B, and do you want to guess the last one? Is it Castor C? It is! So together, these pairs of stars have an apparent magnitude of 1.58. And all three of these systems are spectroscopic binaries. And what's really cool about this system is that these stars... Uh, not only orbit one another in their pairs, but they also orbit the other pairs. So all three sets orbit one another. Gravity, very compelling. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it sounds like a complex sort of cuckoo clock of interlocking stars. Yeah, I'm definitely going to need to find a visualization of how they all orbit each other, but I haven't seen one yet. What I do know is that two of the binary systems are A main sequence stars with a dimmer red dwarf star companion, and Castor C is comprised of two red dwarf stars. The entire system is located 52 light years from Earth. Your gold star of the month has a big act to follow, so let's take a quick break and we will see how your choice stacks up.
Welcome back to our segment, Gold Star, where we alternate picking the star or space object in our constellation of the month that captures our mind, our heart, our soul. Following a sextuple star system is tough. So where did you go with this one, Jordan? Well, there are again some open star clusters similar to the Pleiades and some meteor showers. But as soon as I saw the name of this particular object, I knew it was going to be my choice. Mm-hmm. It has a few names known as Abel. 21. It's known as Sharpless 2-274. But it's the gold star and the one that captured my mind, heart, and soul because it is the Medusa Nebula. I mean, it is hard to argue with Medusa and we're definitely going to need a whole Medusa asterism because that myth is really interesting and this isn't the only stellar object that has the name Medusa. No, of course. The doctor is always going on about the Medusa cascade. (laughs) But of course, as soon as I saw the name Medusa Nebula and then I did the research and looked in the pictures, I was like, oh, my choice is completely validated. The Medusa Nebula was discovered in the 1950s and was considered a supernova remnant until the 1970s. Supernova remnants were like what we talked about last month with the Crab Nebula. Mm-hmm. But unlike the Crab Nebula, it has since been identified not as a supernova remnant, but as an old planetary nebula. Ooh, ominous. <laughs> a planetary nebula is actually what happens at the end of the life cycle of stars like our sun. Basically, our sun will become a red giant and then a white dwarf, and then eventually those layers of dust and gas will break away. What we'll end up with in the end is something that looks like from far, far away, sort of like chewed up pink gum. (laughs) That was my first impression of the Medusa Nebula. And then you get the close-up, and it's just this beautiful waterfall of galactic rainbows. Mm, I mean, I did look at the most recent image, and it looks very entrancing. It's absolutely stunning Mm -hmm. it's about four light years across and it's about 1500 light years from earth so it's a relatively dim space object it still wins my gold star of the month because now that we got a good view of it i can't think that anything else would even come close yeah so last month we had what happens when a big star dies with a supernova remnant this month we see what happens when stars like our sun die This is fascinating and fearsome and a great addition to the Gold Star Club. Welcome to the Medusa Nebula. Okay, Kit, we've talked through the astronomy. Now let's talk about mythology. What did you remember about this myth? So I did remember that this constellation was associated with the twins Pollux and Castor, but I honestly couldn't really think of what myths they were actually in. Yeah, you did better than me, because I had no idea which twins were the subject of this myth. They may as well have been the Olsen twins, as far as I knew. But it turns out it's fair. Their myths are kind of fragmented. I mean, right off the bat, we have differing information about their parentage. In most versions of the myth, Pollux and Castor's mother was Leda of Sparta. This is Sparta! And actually, Pollux and Castor are members of quadruplets. So there's Pollux, Castor, Helen, and Clytemnestra. How close did I get? Yeah, Clytemnestra. Yes, Clytemnestra would marry King Agamemnon, whose name I was definitely taught because of the patriarchy. Yeah, they definitely teach you how to pronounce the men's names, don't they? Oh, they definitely do. (laughs) And then, of course, Helen who would go on to be the face that launches a thousand ships. Oh, poor Helen of Troy. That story needs a retcon. Really, it does. But not today. Today, we're here with baby Helen, 
and her three siblings born of Queen Leda. Now, in Homer's work, they are all the children of the king of Sparta, Tyndareus, who is mortal. But in Hesiod's work, and as more often portrayed, we see a story in which Zeus becomes a swan <laughs> and has sex with Leda on the same night she has sex with her husband. Whether before or after, we don't need to know. But anyways, it results in there being two children of Zeus and two from Tyndareus in the same womb. Yeah, yeah, this can actually happen. It's called heteropaternal superfecundation. Basically, same mom, different dads. Mm -hmm. What's important here is, of course, Zeus is the father of Pollux and Helen, and Tyndareus is the father of the ones whose name begin with C, Castor and Clintimestra. Still, Pollux and Castor are inseparable and are often known by a single name, Gemini in Latin and Dioscuri in Greek mythology. They show up in a number of heroic myths, including the story of the Caledonian boar, which is basically Hercules kills a big boar. And they also show up in the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece as well, a.k.a. boys on boat go to find Sparkle Blanket Goat. <laughs> Sparkle Blanket. So Castor and Pollux are some sort of hero archetype. They are fiercely protective of Helen and protected her from kidnapping and suitors before the Trojan War. But they don't come to rescue her from Troy, because at this point they're said to be dead. In later versions of retcons, however, Pollux is immortal, being the son of Zeus, and only Castor dies. Yeah, and this story is kind of wild, because basically how Castor dies is that it's sort of a longer family drama story. So Castor and Pollux swoop in. They get their cousins. They have twin cousins, of course. Their yep. twin cousins' fiancés pregnant. And so that causes some, you know, conflict, as you might expect. I would expect, yes. But then they're still having controversy with these twin cousins of theirs. And they get into some kind of argument about cattle. And Castor and Pollux go to steal some of the cattle from their cousins. That results in Castor's death. Exactly. It's very confusing. <laughs> Twins, cousins, fiancés. And then in this battle over cattle... One might even call it a cattle battle. <laughs> Either Castor is badly injured or killed by one of the cousins, and Pollux retaliates and kills one of the cousins. And then Zeus is like, I got the other cousin, don't worry, and takes him out. But remember, Pollux is immortal. In some versions, Pollux asks Zeus to revive Castor after he's been killed, whereas in other versions, Zeus offers to give Castor half of Pollux's immortality. Which raises a great question. What exactly is... Half of an immortality. <laughs> I mean, just divide infinity by two. Easy work from our well-known mathematician friend Zeus. <laughs> so Zeus reunites the twins. They spend half of the year in the stars. Mm -hmm. And they spend the other half of the year in the underworld. In Babylonian astronomy, this constellation is also associated with twins. But this time, it's Luga Lyra and Meslam Tia. And there's not that much recorded about these two, but they seem to be twins that stand in the doorway of the underworld, and they often appear on or at doorways. Yes, and most importantly, they chop, chop, chop all the bodies as they enter the underworld. How delightful. Before really delving into the analysis of Castor and Pollux, I do think it's worth noting the archetype of divine twins. Because this is an idea that comes up a lot in early Indo-European religions, and we see a lot of these, quote, divine twins in Greek, Roman, Vedic, Baltic, and Norse mythologies. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because sometimes twins are seen as a bad omen. Sometimes they're lucky or, like you said, they're divine in some way. And I read a really interesting article about how twins are often associated with healing in a 1977 paper by Hancock, which was talking about how twins are a relatively rare phenomenon, and they're rare enough to warrant some kind of explanation across time and culture. Oftentimes, it seems like cultures make these twins into relevant symbols. So twins can be constructive or destructive. They're both natural and supernatural. They are really a representation of duality. Castor and Pollux definitely fit into this idea of duality. Their mythological origin story is likely linked to trying to understand relatively rare type of birth. So we end up with Swan Daddy Zeus being the explanation. But the story also has other themes within it. Although it's a supernatural birth, Castor and Pollux themselves are very close. They're in a rivalry with another set of twins, their cousins, and we see this resulting in the death of Castor. Reading it now, this myth has some applicability to the idea of toxic masculinity, because these guys are kind of dumb-dumb dude bros. Though it isn't really frowned upon per se, since Zeus does eventually swoop in and reunite them, so it almost reinforces this type of, quote, heroic behavior. They get into this entirely asinine battle, mm-hmm. fighting their cousins for their fiancés. And cattle. Uh, and cattle. <laughs> and then they don't have to really deal with their consequences. It's kind of a strange, strange takeaway. But I will say that what I do like about this myth is how it depicts siblinghood. Castor and Pollux are extremely close. They are so close that they go by one name, and one cannot bear to live without the other. They're also shown to be really protective of their sister, Helen. You know, not sure why Clintonestra gets ignored, but I do think (laughs) that it shows the importance of these types of familial bonds. And, you know, I am well known as a person, very close to my sister. Hey, that's me. Yeah, so that really resonated with me. So we do see these myths where siblings, especially half-siblings, are divided and hateful. Of course, there's Loki and Thor. So it's nice to see a myth of half-siblings where they actually love and care for each other, despite their differences in parentages and, in this case, mortality. So there's some good and some not-so-good lessons in this myth, but there's definitely some wreck constellationing to do when we get back from our break. Welcome back to our segment, Ret Constellation. In this segment, we look for ways to modernize and deepen the stories of our monthly constellation, as well as to find ways to make them generally less cringy. Or, in the case of Pisces, sometimes we're just trying to make the myth have anything to do with fish. Um, so where did you go with your Ret Constellation, Jordan? Yeah, the thing that really bothered me about this story was just how fragmented and convoluted it is. You know, they're with Hercules one minute, they're with Jason another minute, they're saving Helen another minute. So I think most importantly, let's streamline this myth. Let's find these two a hero they can support. We don't ever get enough info about them to be main characters. You know, I want to give them some sort of role as like maybe hero sidekicks, either as comic relief or just to give them a specificity of purpose. Yeah, they definitely have great sidekick energy, except we learned what happens to sidekicks last month. Killed by bulls from Ishtar. So I had sort of two pieces here. My first inclination to retcon this myth is just get rid of Zeus and the swan thing. 
You know, um, you can keep it the case that the twins have different fathers. And maybe instead, Lita had an affair and then told her husband it was Zeus. And he was just stupid and believed her. So that's my first just overall, like, let's just scrub the weird swan thing. Once I get rid of Zeus, then I definitely want this constellation to be named after Helen and her twin sister, Clintamestra, and I want to know about their stories. Now, I know we mentioned above how we do need a Helen of Troy retcon, and I know there are some on the Trojan War, including A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes, which is definitely on my to-read list, but I don't actually know if Clintamestra is in that one. And what I really want is a story about these two twins. I want to know about their heroism. I want to know about their kicking butt. Because, like you said, Pollux and Castor are very sidekicky, they're very bro-y, and so I want a story focused on these twin daughters. And I have a name for it. So, you know, Doskuri means, like, children of Zeus, and so I would call this story the Daughters of Thunder and Lightning. I think it can have the same ending as the Pollux and Castor myth, but make it Helen and Clintamestra. And, of course, don't have them going to steal cattle, but have them, I don't know, saving a village of puppies or something like that. I mean, we know Helen for sure has a story. Mm -hmm. So, all right, in the end here, my reconciliation is to give them a cohesive, streamlined, real hero to follow. And yours is to focus maybe less so on Castor and Pollux here. And let's think about more Helen and Clintamestra. Yeah, and I think that, honestly, aside from dealing with Zeus being just Zeus, I think that this myth didn't need as much of a big overhaul as some of the other myths that we've talked about. It's probably one of the least offensive that we've had to <laughs> tackle so far. They're just twins who are kind of dopey and love each other. Great. Kit, it's time to wrap things up by getting a little less serious and quite a bit sillier in our final segment, Pop Culture Superstars. In this segment, we share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation, and then we wish upon a star for what we think should exist. Yeah, and there was a ton of stuff this month, so there was a lot to choose from for Gemini, very popular. So what were your, what was your favorite occurrence, Jordan? Maybe you could have predicted this. It's a racing roller coaster with a wooden structure <laughs> and steel track located mm -hmm. at Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. Mm -hmm. It was built in 1978 by Aerodynamics and is one of the older roller coasters in the park. When it was opened, it was marketed as the tallest, fastest, and steepest roller coaster <laughs> in the world. Of course, I'm talking about the record-breaking roller coaster, Gemini, <laughs> at Cedar Point. I watched the ride-through video. It's Me still too. standing. Oh, wow. Incredible work. I thought this one was a little bit predictable. More than anything, I want to get to Cedar Point and ride this racing roller coaster. That was by far my number one. That one was definitely on my list. Yeah, I also watched the ride-through, like I said. It looked like fun. It looks like there's a great view of the park while you're on it. So, yeah, so that was definitely on my list of favorites. My honorable mention is actually space-related, so that felt a little bit like cheating. Mm -hmm. So was it, was it Stargate-related? <laughs> no, that's not cheating. <laughs> that's just being smart. Yeah, Yeah, that's just uh, being resourceful. So my favorite, though, is Gemini, which is a song by Alabama Shakes. Tell me more. Yeah, it's from their 2015 album, Sound and Color. 
at 6 minutes and 36 seconds. It is the longest song on their album. And there are just some great atmospheric guitar solos by Brittany Howard. It seems like it would be a wonderful song to listen to while you stargaze. One place that was talking about the song called it a psychedelic space jam. And Whoa. that's really, yeah, it's what it sounds like. It's really good vibes. It's relaxing. There is moon and star imagery. You can see the connection to the myth, even though it's also telling a story of love or maybe friendship. So I think this is a, this is a, great, a great song to listen to, and I'm a big fan of Alabama Shakes. So we've both picked out our favorites, but as we said, there are a lot of options here. Mm-hmm. Can we go over our honorable mentions? Yeah, so much to choose from, um, and so this one was sort of, you know, a little cheaty, but it is a observatory called the Gemini Observatory, and it's actually comprised of two really big telescopes that are located in Hawaii and Chile. It is funded across numerous countries. It's a very advanced telescope that has optical and infrared capabilities, lots of other instruments that have acronyms that I do not know what they mean. <laughs> um, but yeah, anything that's doing the science of astronomy, you know, thumbs up. My Gemini honorable mention probably would have been my top choice if I hadn't just done Carnotaurus last month. Mm-hmm. But this was something that I learned while researching for this pod. It was an extinct species that I was unfamiliar with until now. It is a dinosaur from the Cretaceous known as Gemini Raptor. <laughs> I did see this too. Yeah, it was discovered in Utah. In 2010, so it's a relatively new dinosaur. But what really stuck out to me, which made me excited, is discovered by doctors Selena and Marina Suarez, who are twin geologists who Mm. discovered a whole site, which has come to be known as the Suarez site, which has over 12 undiscovered species here. And in 2011, the new species, Gemini Raptor Suarezum, was named after the two of them, the twins. So yeah, Gemini Raptor, it's a beautiful little dinosaur. And just any shout out to Dr. Selena and Marina Suarez, I think is great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I did see that. And I was wondering if we were going to get a one minute rundown. And it does look like very cute. It Um, does look cute. Yeah, I didn't read up on it, though, so I didn't know that the twin geologist sisters had discovered it. That's so cool. All right, Kit, we picked our favorites. We got songs. We got dinosaurs. We got telescopes. We got roller coasters. Mm. Now let's get to our least favorite. You want to start us off? The least favorite choice is Gemini, the cryptocurrency. The reason I I, mean, I don't know anything about cryptocurrency, so mm-hmm. that's, let's just put that out here. The f- reason why I was initially like, I don't like this, is because I could not understand why it was called Gemini. There was like nothing about it on their website. I was like, where is this name coming from? Like, is it even a cute use of this? So no mention, and then I, you know, I dug deeper because, you know, I am a podcaster doing research, very serious. Um, and then I found out that it was run by twins Tyler and Cameron Vinkelvoss. So that didn't make me feel any better, but you know, I don't know anything about crypto. Maybe this is a great crypto exchange, but I just think if you're going to use the word Gemini, you should just use it in a cuter way. That's all. I'll tell you this. As someone who recently watched The Social <laughs> Network, I would not be investing in the Vinkelvoss's cryptocurrency. And I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. Perfect. Perfect. My least favorite, I had a couple choices. Mm -hmm. Like I said, we probably both have an honorable mention for this one as well. But my number one, I had to just choose Superstar Gemini. Did you see this? No. It's a cruise ship, also known as MS Gemini. (laughs) 
It was cut in half at one oh. point. Yeah, so I just picked it because it's a gross, ugly-looking cruise ship. It's garish. It's now defunct. You know, it didn't even last for a while. But it just seemed like a kind of schmaltzy, kind of sleazy cruise liner. So that was my first choice. And yeah. then our honorable mention, we might have the same one. You can, okay. you can give me yours first. So my honorable mention comes in the form, again, in music, the song called Gemini by Keith Urban. And wow, did I not care for this song. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like it, huh? So uh, partly the, the chorus, let me just give you a little snippet of what Please the do. lyrics are. Please do. The chorus that, of course, repeats often is she's a maniac in the bed. Okay. A brainiac in her head. And yep. I know that everybody knows, oh, that she's both. Let's do it one more time for the audience. <laughs> She's a maniac where? In the bed. And she's a brainiac where? In her head. And what do we know about her? Everyone knows that she's both. Yeah, that's great lyrics, Keith Urban. And it's worse. It gets worse. Oh, please share. Please share. He's also on record in an interview talking about how this is about his wife, Nicole Kidman. Oh, my like, God. Why would you say that out loud, even if it's true? Even if Maybe it's true. Maybe don't share that. Yeah, we don't need to know about Nicole Maniac Brainiac <laughs> Kidman. It's best sometimes to leave things a little vague and ambiguous. <laughs> Keith, well, you no. made a choice. Yeah. So how about you? What, what was your honorable mention? Oh, it was Gemini Man. I spoiled this weeks ago. What? Um, I don't even know what this is. Gemini Man. The hit movie with Will Smith, where oh. he fights a child clone version of Will Smith. Mm. Um, I haven't seen it, obviously, but I do remember the marketing campaign from 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, some year between 2012 and 2022. But yeah, again, this just comes back to the same thing I feel about David Duchovny. Like, you have one job. You can do it really well. Maybe even two for you, Will. You can do Men in Black, Will Smith. You can do Fresh Prince, Will Smith. But Will Smith as hardened battle agent facing clone Will Smith, younger <laughs> self. No thanks, guys. Didn't see it. Not gonna see it. It's not my least favorite because the conspicuous consumption of cruise lines definitely Mm -hmm. hits me on another level. But I think this was an F for Will, and it's been a tough five to ten years for our guy. (laughs) Gemini Man. Not on the watch list. Yeah, I think that sums up these, like... A little cringy. Cringy. So let's get to something better. Let's talk about what we wish existed. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you come up with? I have a lot of great ideas. I'm very excited about them, but um, please go first. Great. So the thing that I want is a translation service called mm-hmm. Gemini Speak. It's mm-hmm. something that allows you to encrypt communications between you and your twin. So you decide upon an encoded language together. Mm-hmm. You create some sort of key gram or some sort of translation guide and then you use gemini speak and it will you can type up in normal language and then it'll translate it into gemini speak and send it off to you in a way that is both safe and secure it's a sort of like language processing privacy service mm-hmm. nothing too super creative but what about you you said you had multiple ideas what was oh, your yeah. gemini idea that you wish existed oh my gosh okay so the first two i had seemed too grim so i'll share them after And then I had another one that I liked, but I ended up deciding to go with 
Family Feud, the Gemini special. I like this already better than my data (laughs) encryption message service. Okay. So we're all familiar with the game show Family Feud. If you're not, I'll just pause for one moment while you just um, Google that. Yeah, put it into YouTube. Mm -hmm. So this version of Family Feud is where both families are just sets of twins. Oh, yeah. Tia and Tamara. But but even more, both families are sets of twins, but like extra. So you read about those stories where it's like two twins married two other twins and they had twins. That Those are the families on this special. All right. Hit me up with your more sinister ideas. The very first idea I came up with was the Gemini coffin. So it's like a two person coffin. Uh, Holy you know, double sh- wide. <laughs> oh, my God. It's really dark. What's your last? Equally as dark idea. This one one is much more benign. Um, Uh, She says that now, but. (laughs) So this is the Gemini shopping service. Is it just like a twin robot that shops for you? No, no, no. no. So you and your friends sign up. Okay. And they have some kind of algorithm that creates outfits that go together for you and your bestie, meeting wow. each of your individual style, like, needs and preferences. But so also, can, like, coordinate. like, yeah, coordinate them together. Yeah. Oh, my God. Besties outfits. That's mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's kind of like a yeah. stitch fix, but you work with two people and you yep. combine the things that you both like and find some sort of way that you can bounce off each other. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today as we learned all about the constellation Gemini. Please join us next month on Starry Time, and we'll be taking on Cancer the Crab. This has been Kit. And Jordan. Sisters, lovers of stars and stories. And we'll see you next time. On Starry Time. <laughs>